Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 76. Things are beginning to move along the Eastern Cape frontier through the region previously known as Azurfelt. The Albany district, with its rocky rivers and ravines, its thorny bush-covered recesses and rolling grasslands, and its magnificent mountains. The great house of the Amatkaleke had sorted out their differences. These were the Amatkosa, based east of the Kai River, and Hinsa had managed to take control of the clans who had been drifting away. He did this by both guile and blood. For example, Hinsa engineered the massacre of 17 councillors of the Inkorsini clan, who'd been tricked into joining a hunting expedition. Things weren't all happiness and light in Kosa country, however stunning the landscape appeared. Hinsa then turned westwards, and naturally his eyes alighted on the territory controlled by Nika and Nklambe. It was time to take sides in their decades-old dispute, and Hinsa decided to support Nklambe, basically because he hated Nika, who had humiliated him in the past as he grew up. Hinsa decided he'd humiliate Nika in turn, and recognized Nklambe as the rightful ruler of the Amararabeg branch of the Amatkosa. Ntlambe was also on the move, so to speak. He'd reconciled with his son, Umdushan, who'd been vacillating about whether he'd support his dad or Nika. Nika was angered by Hinsa's slight. A local war was brewing. It wasn't the only man who'd come to appreciate Ntlambe's rule. The other was a Amakosa commoner called Ngeli, who'd become known as a war doctor. The past 50 years had seen the Amakosa and the colonials clashing constantly with the Amatkosa forced to watch their land being overrun by these strange people from across the sea. So the Amatkosa began to seek supernatural help in their mission to reverse this loss. It was clear they needed more magical weapons to defeat these Europeans, who were far better organized and equipped, who were supported by this King George with his big ships and endless supply of cash. The problem was, the Amatkosa ancient otherworldly forces appeared too weak to do the job. They needed a new and more diverse bit of magic. And along came Ngaele and others who were to mold Christianity and Amatkosa animism into a unique philosophy. Believe it or not, this message remained the basis of anti-colonial feeling to this day. And you're going to recognize the basic storyline that is trotted out by contemporary politicians. And there were two main forms of philosophy that developed amongst the Kosa by 1817. One was the belief that supernatural forces could be called up to help fight these colonials, and the other was that the same forces could be used to ensure Amatkosa's survival, submitting to the inevitable. The missionaries preached the second version, but the chiefs weren't so sure. What happened is that the rival Amararabi chiefs then adopted the spiritual advisors who mirrored either route either dominance or submission. Inrika turned to Intikana, who was a Christian convert, who was preaching peaceful coexistence with Europeans. He was into the submission route, but Ntlambe welcomed Ngaele, who was inspired by a form of black identity mixed with Christianity, and who prophesied that the Amatkosa would fight and eventually chase the colonials into the sea. He was into the dominant route. Ngaele meant chase the colonials into the sea literally, as all hardcore pan-African politicians worthy of their salt in South Africa have repeated ever since. Ngale's real name was Makanda, but virtually no one called him that, at least to his face. It was regarded as insulting, so they called him Ngale, which means left-handed, as he was indeed left-handed. 
The Boers could not pronounce Ngledi, so called him Lynx, as in left, in Dutch. The British, following the Boers, took to calling him Lynx, as in the type of wildcat. Talk about confusion. Ngledi was born on a Boer farm in the Cape, as you've already heard. He could speak Dutch and Koza, and he had a dream. He was determined that the Amatosa god, this Mdalidipu, was black and was far superior to the god of the missionaries and the whites, who he called Tiko. And clearly saw signs, he had fits, he saw visions and was a mysterious figure. He believed the world was a battleground between these two gods. He said Mdalidipu would punish Tiko and his white sinners. But Nkwele was not just a person, at least that's what he began to tell people. He was actually the brother of Tai, who was the son of God, and said that Tai had been killed by Europeans, and for this crime, Mdaladipu would eventually drive them into the Indian Ocean, or the Atlantic, or both. The Abantu Abasamanzi must have arisen from an island in the sea, and now they must be driven back into the waves, he said. This idea has been repeated ever since by extremist politicians, who seem unaware that their belief system is a warped reading of the Bible blended with sorcery and animism rooted in xenophobia, a bizarre kind of Africanist, Marxist, Baptist, messianic worldview. Ingele as God's son and his agent on earth was clearly the chosen one selected to drive these Europeans back whence they came. Amazingly, there is a great deal of evidence proving that Ntlambi did not believe everything that Ingele said, but he recognized a society-changing force when he saw one. This is a classic case of a messianic millenarian process where the charismatic leader who's a bit odd is managed by a clever local political force, a captain, who nurtures the apparent madness in order to enrich themselves or empower themselves. Millenarianism is a word originating in Latin millenarius, containing a thousand, and is a belief by a religious, social, political group or movement in a coming fundamental transformation of society after which all things will be changed. A millennialist movement is rooted in Christianity, so it's probably a bit more accurate to calling Ngele's ideology millennialist. Examples of these sorts of movements are incredibly diverse, including the Andean Ungche movement of the late 1500s, which was a response to the introduction of sexually transmitted and other diseases by the Spanish into South America. Then the ghost dance amongst early first peoples of the United States. Even the Mormons are an example of this and the Taiping Rebellion in China in the 1850s. And later, in our story, the cattle killing dreamed up by Nongkwa which is almost four decades away from 1817, that's coming. So back in 1816, Nklambe allowed Ngele to set up his homestead near the great place on the Buffalo River, about 20 kilometers inland from where East London is today, and the war doctor became rich and powerful. His philosophy was a simple one. Black people should procreate at a faster rate than whites and then fill the earth in a typical messianic approach conflating many messages using the Old and New Testaments where appropriate to drive home his world view. And of course, after years of being defeated by the Dutch and then the British, many Amakosa latched onto his teachings as divinely inspired. He distorted the Christian message of the resurrection, turning it into a prophecy that if people followed his way, then he would, at some point in the future, bring their ancestors back to life along with their cattle. I'm sure the politically aware amongst listeners will begin to recognize modern versions of this somewhat 
misshapen message, with some of our so-called leaders morphing into messianic caricatures. And Flumby monitored Ngale very closely. They were neighbours after all, and delighting in the war doctor's ability to mobilise people. He had a charisma and the gift of the gab. Furthermore, Ngale began to intensify the mystery of his origin, describing himself as the brother of Christ, born of the same mother. If you look at Ngale's life, it's a classic case of domestic disaster. His father was a causa commoner, without noble lineage, who disappeared soon after his birth. Then his mother abandoned him as a child, and he took up a John the Baptist-like existence in the felt. His withdrawal from society was a common process for the Amatosa diviners, the traditional healers. It's a ritualized process that is supposed to put the mystical man or woman in touch with their ancestral shades. Ngale was not a madman. He, in turn, recognized and Tlambi was his partner in this philosophical venture and began to denounce Ngika as an adulterous and incestuous sinner for marrying Tutula, who was Ntlambe's abducted wife. Ngale also reinforced the message that the Amatosa troubles sprang from their offences against the ancestral shades and their god. He said their military misfortunes against the British and the Boers and the cause of the present drought of 1816 and 1817 all emanated from the sins of the people and he railed against sorcery, polygamy, adultery, incest, and even racing oxen, which was a much-loved pastime amongst the Amatosa. Ngale refused to eat prepared food, saying it was unclean and stopped drinking milk. And his constant shout while preaching was, Forsake witchcraft! Forsake blood! This was approaching sacrilege, as far as the Amatosa were concerned, and before Nthambe stepped in to use him as his millenarian of choice, some people had enough of Ngale. They lit a massive bonfire and were about to toss him into it when they were stopped. He only just escaped being lionized by fire. Like so many messianic figures through history, Ingleli had charismatic power and he was a forceful presence. He was at least six foot six tall and called stout and handsome by those who met him. And his demeanor was reserved, solemn, thoughtful. He seemed to be able to cast a spell on people who heard him speak they flocked in their thousands to hear his message, and he exhorted them like a missionary with carefully crafted speeches about sin and hellfire. Ironically, most of those who heard him did not convert to Christianity. They were more interested in his overall message, i.e. how to drive the colonists out of their land, which was incredible itself because Ngleli was a commoner. Nothing like this had been seen before. Normally only the royal blood could motivate folks on this scale. Word began spreading about this war doctor, and one of those who heard about him was Intikana, who had decided on taking a different route using Christianity as his tool as well. Intikana's theology was in reaction to Ngledis after he lived with the missionaries, particularly Funda Kemp, who we met a few episodes ago. Insikana began hearing reports about Ingleri in 1817 as the Zurfeld was gripped by an extreme drought. And Insikana's Christianity was based in harmony, preaching that God was a cloak that protects all true believers, Amakosa or colonists, and submitting to God's will would create peace. Insikana took this message to Ntlambe, who thought about it for a while, then rejected the passive approach. So Insikana went off to Ingleka, who liked the fact that this convert had been rejected by his arch-enemy and then used him as a counsellor, and it was Nsikana 
who repeatedly told Nguika to work with the British. Lord Charles Somerset had just met with the chiefs, as you heard in episode 75, and now the authorities were to enforce the Spoor Law. That's where tracks of stolen cattle were followed back to homesteads, and even if the people of that homestead had nothing to do with the Koza raids on Trekboer farms, they would be forced to hand over their own cattle. Somerset had set in motion a few destabilizing processes. The Spoor Law was aimed at Ntlambe, but affected Nguika's people, who were closer to the colonists, and now wondered what they'd done to be punished. As the two Amararabe chiefs traded philosophies, Lord Charles Somerset decided to allow the London Missionary Society to set up a station inside Koza territory across the Kai River. This was against most of the Trekboers and even his own Landrost's advice. But Somerset was convinced the missionaries would provide him with useful intelligence. While not exactly hired as spies, he was sure they'd pass on information at their earliest convenience. And James Reed was the person he'd turned to first. Jacob Kyler, the Jutenhag Landros, was totally against this idea, mainly because Reed had a few issues. He had fallen in love with a young coy woman, despite being married with kids. More about that in a moment. Somerset eventually chose Joseph Williams, a modest man in his mid-thirties, who'd just landed in Cape Town with his wife and infant son. But Williams could not speak Dutch, nor Koza. But he was joined by another important person in our story, called Gianni Chachu, who was an interpreter. James Reed was then sent along as his guide. The Williams Trek arrived in Grahamstown in mid-1816, and the British military commander, Major George Fraser, welcomed him with a dark secret, writing that he believed Williams would be dead in a few days. The Amakosa would murder him. Then Williams' trek party left Grahamstown, toiling out of the hot bowl, in which the village lay, and cresting the cooler high ground, then looking out at the distant Amatolas, the home of Nguika, and the blue ocean on their right. Reed was feeling guilty. Despite being one of the senior leaders at the Bethelstorp Mission Station, he had succumbed to adultery. He'd been indulging in an affair with a young coy woman, despite being both a priest and married. Still, here he was, dressed in his black LMS missionary frock, preaching about the evils of debauchery and sin. The trek party built large fires at night at a hill overlooking the Fish River as a signal to Damakosa. They came in peace. Two days later, Ntlambi's messengers arrived and greeted them with great joy, then helped drag their wagons across the river. Having crossed, the mission party found themselves surrounded by about 100 followers of Ngaele. Eventually, the war doctor arrived and he was a bit out of sorts, saying they should have called on him first as the resident messiah. So the missionaries dutifully headed to Ngwele's great place, which was close to Ntlambe's, as you know. That Sunday, more than a thousand people turned up to hear Ngwele's sermon, which was laced with invective about how naughty the Tosa were with their polygamy and milk-drinking ways. Then Ntlambe arrived. Ntlambe had half a dozen wives, but he just ignored his war doctor's rants. It was now clear to the missionaries why the Amakosa were happy to see them. This wasn't Lumbe's people. They hated Ngnika, and the missionaries had chosen them instead of Ngnika to visit first. They realized the happy reception had nothing to do with the message of Christianity. It was all about local politics. Furthermore, the missionaries were alarmed by Nkwele's rendition of his version of Christianity. Later, they said that he had 
combined what he had learned of the creation, the fall of man, the atonement, the resurrection, with some of the superstitious beliefs of his countrymen. In his own wild fancies, he framed a sort of extravagant religious medley. Reed was also aware of the delicate and dangerous diplomatic task imposed upon this religious trek. Any decision about where to locate the new mission station was rife. After a few days, Williams and Reed departed Inglaire's great place without announcing the location of the new mission station, and this angered Inglaire. Inglaire was not only angry, however, he was furious. The missionaries had turned their backs on him, Mdaladipu's chosen son. How dare they? This wild fury was going to be directed at the people of Gramstown within a year. A week later, the missionary trek party arrived at Nguika's great place, and the people fled when the wagons arrived because the missionaries had been to Nklambe first. Nguika had been fully briefed about what they'd been up to at his enemy's kraal, and he was also upset. Eventually, Williams and Reed told him they had decided to set up the mission station in his territory, but he was far too politically astute to show any happiness. He dealt with the missionaries like he dealt with the slachter's neck rebels, smoothly, but without making promises, maintaining a semblance of being in charge when he actually wasn't. So this was the first permanent mission station, the first amongst Bantu-speaking peoples of South Africa, and later this station would become known as Fort Beaufort. It's on the main road between Makanda and East London. The site that Reed and William selected was on the Cut River, a beautiful narrow stream that descends out of the mountains of the Great Escarpment and flows through a broad and fertile valley to the Fish River. The mountains of the Escarpment are called the Winterbach, and in that time they had thick forests of tall yellowwood amongst the most stately trees on earth at the time. Just east of the mission, the Escarpment tumbles into the Amatola Hills, and that was Nguika's heartland. The chief's great place was at the base of the Amatola Mountains, 15 miles from the mission station. Eventually, Joseph Williams, his wife and infant son, accompanied by Diani Chachu and his Koi Koi wife, and eight Koi converts from Bethelsdorp, made their way from Algoa Bay to set themselves up at the Cat River Mission Station. It was a terrifying trip. During the day, they had to avoid elephants, and at night, lions would roar around their campsite. The Boers, meanwhile, spread rumours that the mission station was full of spies, which is partly true, but they were really unhappy that the Amakosa were being converted to Christians. Meanwhile, back in Bethelsdorp, the crisis broke over James Reed's adultery with the daughter of a coy elder called Mr. Pretorius in the church there. Pretorius was a bastard, mixed race of Boer and coy origin. Reed was ordered to sever ties with the girl, and as Williams settled into his Cut River mission, Reed headed off for the mid-orange area towards the town of Lataku with his long-suffering wife, while the Koi Pretorius family trekked northeast with their pregnant daughter towards the Vaal River. And that's where the young girl gave birth to James Reed's illegitimate son. Ntlambe, meanwhile, began to raid Nguika's territory constantly, and the old man thought it was time to settle matters with his nephew. Nika raised 2,000 warriors at his great place on the Tumi River, and his aim was to attack Nklambe's great place on the Buffalo. But Nsikana warned Nika of the dangers, appearing before the Amararabi chief holding a clay pot full of water. Nsikana shouted, Nkosi, please do not fight with your brothers, because if you do, you will fail. 
and threw the bowl to the ground, smashing it into pieces. Then he said, This is what is going to happen if you go there and fight. Nika didn't listen, and what's more, he had his son Matkoma command his army. This man was to become well known to the British and ended up personifying the concept of Idumo, heroic fame. He was born just before 1800 of one of Nika's junior wives and therefore belonged to Nika's right-hand house. The chief was lining him up as heir until his great wife Sutu, who was a Tembu princess, gave birth to Sandile in 1820, one of the most famous of all Amatkoza chiefs, as you're going to hear. Matkoma was called Jongum Sumbomvu, which means watching the sunrise. He was an alert man, highly situationally aware, charismatic, although short in stature. His piercing gaze and sharp tongue were feared. So the 2,000 warriors marched south to Nklambe's great place near East London and ended up camping near the base of a mountain called Ntaba Kandoda, which is about 20 kilometers southeast of Hogsback as the crow flies. The next morning they headed off but soon spotted several hundred of Ntlambe's warriors camped below the Debe Ridge on an open plain immediately below Ntaba Kandoda. Not all was as it seemed. The open plain was dotted with shallow depressions known as Amalinde, full of thick bush. An army could hide in these depressions and not be seen from the high ground. Makoma ordered the attack and his men charged into a trap. Mdushani, Ntlambe's eldest son, who'd only recently decided to return to fight for his father, had put the less experienced men in the path of Makoma's charging warriors. They fell back, exposing Makoma's flanks to several thousand warriors waiting in one of these Amalinda, hidden in the thick forest. These men were from the Kunukwebe, the Dange, the Mbalo and the Ntinde. And of course, by now, you've met these folks and know their background. And for the first time, there was also a unit from the Amakaleka, led by Hinsa himself. The eastern Kosa were fighting with the western Kosa to defeat Inlika's warriors. Matkoma's men fought all day, but they were encircled and pushed backwards up the slopes of Ntaba Kandoda. Matkoma was then assegaied and seriously wounded, escaping capture and possible death when some of his men carried him from the battlefield. He had fought bravely, but was defeated. Mdushani's men, some who were armed with guns and horses, pursued Nguika's men raiding their homesteads and seizing over 6,000 cattle. Back at Ntaba Kandoda, the wounded were killed off. Some were impaled on sharpened sticks and left as an example to other Amakosa people. 300 of Makoma's men died here, a major battle in the annals of Amakosa history. Nguika had to flee his great place, heading to the Winterbach Mountains, where he established himself once more. The Battle of Amelinda is recalled in many stories to this day. It was characterized by ferociousness. The British watched all of this with some concern. Their ally Nika had been vanquished. Nklambe was at pains to avoid confrontation with the colony directly and then sent an urgent message to Lord Charles Somerset saying he was anxious to remain at peace. But the British were under pressure to protect their ally and in December 1818, Somerset dispatched an army of infantry and mounted trekboers led by Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Brereton to deal with Ntlambe. As soon as they appeared in the Albany area, thousands of Nguika's Amakosa warriors joined them. They wanted vengeance. And vengeance it was, as this large army rolled across Ntlambe's territory, burning homesteads and capturing 23,000 head of cattle, leaving Ntlambe's people utterly destitute. 
and the chief ended up hiding in a nearby forest. Brereton's men were feared mainly because they liked to kill men, women and children, something which was completely anathema to the Amatkosa, but not the first time that the colonials had broken with African military tradition. It was the murder of these innocents, the children of the Amatkosa, and the capture of so many cattle that pushed Nklambe and his war doctor into a corner. Brereton couldn't capture Nklambe, so he turned his army around and headed back to the colony, leaving the eastern area of the Cape, a burning disaster area. Things were just getting started. Ngwele had warned the people not to palaver with these colonials, and he was proven right. What happened next is for episode 77. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.